Welcome to another class. Uh, glad that you're here. Uh, glad you've joined us. And uh, again, I'm always grateful that uh, for those of you who will let us know where you're coming from so we can see the spread of the demographics and all that good stuff. Um, now, as we, we get going, uh, but by way of information, uh, for those of you who watch later, this may not make much difference to you, but uh, we're probably going to be uh, concluding this class probably in mid-December and then picking it up in uh, January. And it, it, it may look really different in January because uh, it looks like we're going to be returning live uh, as a class and we will probably be, for the purposes of, you, of those of you who may be watching this remotely, uh, that we'll be recording that class and we'll see if, as we get closer if that's exactly what happens, but uh, that's kind of the plan. So the good news is a return to live class the middle of uh, January uh, and that, that'll be a good thing. Okay, now, also on top of that, as, as we get started, um, I'm also recording this uh, shortly after Thanksgiving uh, here in the fall, which was a chance to get together with uh, kids and grandkids. There's now 14 of them, and they were all gathered together, and some of the, some of the grandkids are a little younger, and some of them fall in that special period of time when they get to about age three and four and five where it really really begins to be important about things have to be fair and fair means it's the same way each time and this is where you get them going off and going I wanted the blue plate and you gave me the red plate or you cut my sandwich in triangles not in squares uh, or like our one grandson was sobbing uncontrollably when we found out it's because my banana got broken <laughs> I wanted a banana and it broke and I he for the life of him he not only could he not eat a broken banana but it but the world was falling apart because he had a broken banana and we get this sense of it has to be fair and I need to get what everybody else is getting um, now interestingly enough we kind of do that as adults don't we uh, there is this this need for things to be fair and fair, we, we run this through our filter. Fair generally means I get the same thing that everybody else does, or at least maybe I get more, and then in that case, I don't worry so much about fair. Um, it's like C.S. Lewis used to say that pride doesn't want so much of something. Pride wants more of it than somebody else. But at the very least, we want fair. It means that it needs to be equal. Uh, and, and we get upset about if things aren't fair, meaning same outcome. Now, from that standpoint, so let me, let me ask a compelling question then. Um, if, when we're wondering about fairness and trying to make things fair, um, here's my question. Do we consider God to be fair? What would that mean if God were fair? Does that fairness mean that everybody gets basically the same thing? And I think we'd have to immediately jump out and say, well, obviously, even if we are believers in God and followers of Christ, we look around the world and we look at each other and we look even within our own families and we say, it's not fair. Things haven't been created in a fair sort of way. Some people seem to have more. 
You ever wonder when we get to Christmas holidays and people start showing off their talents and it's obvious that it's, talents haven't been distributed equally, fairly. Some people have got more, some have got less, some have got more of this, someone's got someone else and some don't have nearly as many. So we get to that talents and it seems like everybody's got different talents. Well, that's not fair. And we look at those that go through a lot of trials and circumstances in their life and we think, well, that's not fair. Um, now, sometimes we look at it and say, well, maybe those people deserved to have what they've got. So then it's, it's not so much fairness as much as it is the, the Indian idea of karma, that suddenly it came back to bite them. And we'll talk about that actually in a second. But is God fair? We're not really happy to say God isn't fair. Now, we are quick with our kids raising them, and we've all done it, right? We have all done this. And they say, well, it's not fair. And we say, well, life isn't fair. Uh, and things happen, and then we say, well, uh, it says in, in the Bible that God, it rains on the righteous and the unrighteous, uh, and, and that it's not going to be fair. But what happens when it's not fair? How much does that, how much do we find ourselves in the midst of trial secretly believing that good things should happen to good people and bad things should happen to bad people and when good things happen to bad people, it's not fair, God isn't fair. And that is the very moment when a lot of people looking for a God of fairness jump off the God bandwagon because they say a kind, loving, and fair God would never do this or would never allow that. And I, and I need to believe in a God who is completely fair that will protect everybody from these atrocities, horrible as they are, but then I need him to be able to do these things and if he's not, then he isn't really a God that I'm interested in because I'm interested in the God of fairness. Not believing in that God doesn't necessarily have changed any of the fairness problems. But it's like secretly we want that fairness. And I want to talk to a little bit about that today and how we, how we tend to look at that uh, in the scriptures. Uh, because I think some things are going to jump out at us and there are some eternal truths that, that fall in line with fairness and, and about our expectations that sometimes set us up I think to be able to struggle in the future when it turns out that mortality has not been fair to us or to someone that we love and that ends up being a problem. So I love this idea by uh, Elder Holland who said a few years ago speaking of uh, certain two widows especially and we're going to talk about those two widows today. Elder Holland said this, their names are not recorded in the scriptures, he says. But if I'm ever priv so privileged in all the eternities to meet them, I would fall at their feet and say thank you. Thank you for the beauty of your lives and for the wonder of your examples. Now, again, we're going to talk about these two widows today. So powerful were one of, one of these widows that when Jesus uh, begins his ministry, he begins it, you remember, in Luke 4 in, in the synagogue in Nazareth. 
when he gets done, they try and throw him off the rock quarry um, and stone him because they didn't like what he said. What was it that he said? Well, he when he's speaking in that Nazareth synagogue, he points out the example of this first one we're going to talk about as an example of God's love. And the problem with this love is that it's for a Gentile as opposed to one of the covenant Jewish widows, or the Israelite widows at the time. That shouldn't be fair and it shouldn't be right. So, let's let's start with the first example of, uh, of this widow. And again, you, you know this story. Widow number one. We have Elijah. And of course, Elijah is... Uh, brings on a drought to try and get the people to repent um, and because of that he has to leave town uh, and and he's fed by ravens at, at a creek and then the drought gets worse and worse and he's going he's gonna to die of uh, uh, up in the mountains if he doesn't get down to town so what happens the word of the Lord said arise and come to Zarephath or uh, Sarepta uh, in Sidon, that is that is a Gentile area on the north coast, what is it now more like Lebanon, up there on the coast. Uh, uh, and he says, I want you to dwell there in Serapath, uh, or Sarepta. Behold, he says, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Now think about that. Here is a Gentile woman. She's not Israelite. And the Lord says, I reached out and commanded her. Now, she's been commanded by the Lord. She doesn't even know she's been commanded by the Lord. She is going to do some things directed by God to do the right things, but in the process of that, it's not even known to her that that's exactly what she's doing. But it'll become known to her. Think about how many people in the world, as a side note, have actually been commanded by God, but they would never attribute it to God. Think about all of the scientific breakthroughs that might have been done by, by self-proclaimed atheists, or beautiful works of art, or, or scientific breakthroughs, uh, or things that have been invented, commanded by God to help his work roll forward, and they never would have believed that God's hand was in it. And it was. This is one of those times. So, Elijah's going to come. He, he arises. He goes, he goes to Sarepta. And when he came to the gate of the city, uh, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks outside the, the city. And he calls to her and says, Bring me a little water in the vessel, in a vessel that I may drink. She's probably, as she's gathering sticks, she's probably somewhere near a well. And as she was going to bring it, he's got one more request, and this is the big one. He called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. Now, this is one of those times when I think she says, okay, I need to give you the backstory, stranger, that's just shown up. And she said, as the Lord your God, your Israelite God, as the Lord your God lives. In other words, I'm going to swear by your God, so I'm not trying to lie to you. I'm not trying to pass you off. As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. 
only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. We talk about it sometimes as the cruise of oil. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks, that two sticks. We'll come back to that in just a minute because I think it's an important detail. I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go and prepare it for myself and my son. So this is a widow with a, a dependent son and apparently nobody else that we may eat it and die. That seems to be the plan for today. She's down to her last, there's a drought. Um, she's down to her last bit of oil, her last bit of grain, and she's gonna get two sticks so she can have a fire, so she can cook this up. And then she says, then we will have nothing basically and we're going to die. Now, this has always been one of those that just feels pretty grossly unfair, doesn't it? Because um, that's the point at which you think Elijah would say, Oh, wait a minute. Let me take care of that. I do. I, I did. Uh, I did bring the drought. Um, I could actually do something for you, if if you will go and and make a bunch of things and then bring some. But he's going to be more specific here. This is the crazy request. And Elijah said to her, "Do not fear. Go and do as I have said. Bring me that morsel of bread. But first, make me a little cake of it." and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. Well, that's kind of the height of chutzpah, to use the Jewish word, the, the Yiddish word. That's chutzpah. I know you don't have anything, but make, I'm going to give you the means, make the cake for me first, and then something for you. Now that's, that's pushing somebody in a really big way. What does she do? And then he says, but now he's going to add, this God that you just swore by, for thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And by the way, I know, because I'll be the one that requests the Lord to end the drought. Now, that's that moment that hangs in the balance. Because we don't know what more is said beyond that. Elijah, there's only going to be her and Elijah that will have this conversation. So it must have been in Elijah's writings that ultimately they were able to then include in the Old Testament. He just simply says, she went and did as Elijah said. Way out on a limb, way out on the trust level. But somehow, you think if she's been commanded by the Lord that maybe she feels inside of her that maybe this, this is possible. So she does that. Now, there's two stories here. The one we know, the one we tell, and the one we don't know, or we, maybe we do know, but we rarely tell it. So let's start with the story we do know. Because this is one of those stories that we like to tell. Um, when we talk about sacrifice and trust and faith. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and her household, or there may have been others, ate for many days. They're going to eat until the, the drought stops. And the jar of flour was not spent, 
neither was the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. So she's going to go out uh, way on a limb and here comes the miracle. Uh, she kind of passed the test, if you will. Uh, so now she did it. She was able to uh, save Elijah, save her son, and, and even some additional ones, it looks like, in her own household. Now, yay, miracle has occurred. That's her next... Her next fast and testimony meeting, she can stand up and bear a pretty powerful testimony about what happened at her house during the week um, and, and amaze everybody there at sacrament meeting. But here's the question that I have on this miracle. And it has to do with the miracles that we have received ourselves. When you, and I, when you have received a tender mercy or a full-on miracle. You know that only God could have been in this, and so you know that you've been the recipient of something miraculous. Maybe someone was cured of cancer that shouldn't have been, or survived a car accident that shouldn't have survived. When you have these miracles, what do you expect to happen next? Because, in a sense, when those moments occur, we ought to feel like, yes, God has my back. And because I'm now on the miracle track, is it all good moving forward? Because now I know that God is effective in my life and things are happening, so only good things are going to happen going forward. may not so much be about fairness at this point as much as it is. This is what happens when you are in sync with God. God's in sync with you. And now that miracles are occurring... Angels are going to sing, and off you go down this path, and it gets better because we're following this, okay? Are we all good, okay? Well, the reason we don't tell the second half of the story is I think it makes, it, it adds more complication, actually, to this whole story. So, here's the story we usually don't tell quite so much, okay? So, we're talking about how uh, the cruise of oil becomes does it become empty and all that? Now here comes the rest of the story, uh, to quote Paul Harvey. And after this miracle, and it had happened, and things settled down, we're now at peace, we're able to eat, we're able to stay full, the son of the woman becomes ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. He died. So she gets this miracle to preserve his life so he doesn't starve to death and he dies anyway. Now, we don't know in the long run. Maybe we'll know in the millennium. Maybe when this we get a chance to interview her. Maybe he had some illness that was going to come on and that's why it is that Elijah was called to her because he was going to be able to save the son who was going to have this illness they didn't know yet know about. Um, we don't have uh, Dr. House to come in and diagnose this thing. There's just going to be this illness that, that happens, right? All she knows is that she passed the test. She fed Elijah before she fed herself. She passed the test. The oil is not running out. The grain is still in the hamper. 
They're eating. Things are fine. And now the son dies. Now, look at where, where her head goes. I thought I was on the miracle track. I thought God had my back. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? <laughs> what, what, what do you got against me? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance? Maybe I'm being punished because of my old sin. Maybe that's why my husband died. Maybe it's something from my youth. Who knows? You've come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. You tease me with the miracle I passed and my son dies anyway. This isn't supposed to happen when we're on the miracle track. That's not fair. It's not supposed to work this way. Okay? Now, let's continue the story because she, she's not the only one having problems here. And Elijah says to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up to the upper chamber where he lodged. She's got him up in the attic, sleeping up there, and laid him on his own bed. And then Elijah cries to the Lord and says, Oh, Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? She's not the only one struggling with this. He said, We're on the miracle track. This is good things are supposed to happen, and you killed him off. Wow. So even the, even the prophet, that humanness in him that says, I followed you, I, ravens fed me, uh, I was drinking water, uh, it ran out, you brought me here. Where'd you go? Good things are supposed to be happening when the miracles start occurring. And, and in return though, the Lord listens to the, the voice of Elijah after, remember, he stretched out for three times upon the boy, almost like a, uh, giving him uh, artificial uh, resuscitation. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child, delivered him to his mother, and Elijah said, See, your son lives. Now, so often then, I think... We see trials, and, th and those trials occur, and then the miracle comes that rescues us from the midst of the trial. I don't think we always see as quickly what happens when the trial comes after the miracle has already occurred. Uh, for instance, we look at in the Book of Mormon in, in 1 Nephi 8, when Lehi, in, in his dream, is in a... Uh, dark and dreary world he cries out an angel comes he's now been rescued and the angel says follow me and he ends up in a dark and dreary waste in other words it gets worse after the angel comes well brothers and sisters sometimes in our lives the struggle comes after we've been rescued it comes after that's what happened at Martin's Cove, for instance, where my pioneer grandfather was part of the rescue of the uh, Martin Handcart Company at Martin's Cove in 1857, 1856. And a lot of what we talk about 
the struggles that they had, the deaths they had, actually came after they had already been rescued. And I think we have to learn to set our anticipation to say, we're going to be grateful for the miracles that we get, but that doesn't mean that we should expect that now no more trials will occur relative to this thing, because we're being told that trials do follow miracles. And that's one of those messages that we get over and over uh, in the scriptures. So let me give you, uh, so, so that, that is widow number one. Here comes widow number two. And widow number two is, again, one of those stories that we laud and honor, and perhaps we miss what is actually going on here. What we're saying in, with, with widow number two, you have, to, you have to see this in context or you probably miss it. Jesus is kind of, he's, he's, in, he's visiting Jerusalem. He goes into the temple and when he's there, he's surrounded by throngs of people. Uh, this is late enough in Luke. This might even been the moment when he actually shuts the temple down after he's cleared out the money changers. So he's surrounded by a group of a large group of people, and he's going to use this moment to go on uh, on the attack from uh, on a group of people. And and it says in the hearing of all the people, so everybody's listening. He said to his disciples, Beware the scribes and those who are scribe-like, like the Sadducees, who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and in the best seats of the synagogue and the places of honor in the feasts. They want to always be treated with honor. They want the best seat, the best food, uh, nothing Nothing mediocre for them. These are the same people, by the way, if, if you go into uh, Jerusalem and in up above where the temple complex is, was the houses built in Roman style of the Sadducees that were the, the curators and the runners of the temple. And they would take the, the money from the high interest they would charge to exchange money, uh, the money that was put into the coffers, for the building of the temple, ended up in their pockets. Herod was building the temple. Herod was doing all those things. They've got money coming into a temple fund that's actually being used to help sustain the lavish lifestyle of the Sadducees in their Roman-style homes in the upper part, the other side of the valley up there, overlooking the temple. And they're living great in marble homes with all kinds of gardens and fountains and all that kind of stuff, okay? And he's saying, these guys, watch these guys. What's the, and what is the problem with, with them having all of that? Okay, Here's what he says. Who devour, these people, devour widows' houses by taking their money or taking their debts or letting them starve. They devour widows, houses, and for a pretense, make long prayers. Think the Rami Ampton. We are so grateful we're not them. We've got lots of money. They have none. It's because of our specialness, because of who we are. They devour widows' houses and make long prayers. They, he said, will receive greater condemnation for the starvation that they're doing 
for widows. Now, right on cue, a singular event happens. Right in the middle of the sermon. It's one of the great little object lessons in the Savior's life. Look at what happens right in that moment. Jesus looked up, right in this speech, and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. This isn't like tithing or fast offerings. This is the money going in to maintain the temple that they will benefit from. The temple that in just in a little bit he's going to say, hey, and I'll, I'll, by the way, all this will be torn down in three days. Okay. He saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And, while, and, and with the crowd watching, he says he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. Two mites. I have one in my office of the, the, the two mites. Now, and he says, with the crowd listening, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of the rich. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But listen closely. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Now, let me stop for a second. We tend to tell this story of the widow might, the widow's mites, as sacrificing all that we have for the kingdom of God. And it certainly works at that level. Uh, and we're grateful for the sacrifice, the little bit that everybody's able to give out of their what they have that what they have they give. And we should recognize that and celebrate that. Certainly Elder Holland wants to meet her because of this. But brothers and sisters, make no mistake, this passage is not is only secondarily celebrating the sacrifice of the widow. There is no question, especially if you read it in 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 context, that this is a powerful condemnation of the rich and the way that they are treating the poor in Jerusalem at this point. Because here's the reality. Look again. She's going to give uh, her two little bits, the two little denarii, but she's going to give out of her poverty and put in all she has to live on. We don't know what comes next. She has now given up the rest she has, and she has nothing else. She's a widow. She obviously she hasn't been remarried. There's been no leveret marriage with her um, with her husband's brothers or her sons taking care of her. She's giving the last little bit. And I think it's significant that there's two mites, and it might even been in the in the mind of this woman. What other two last bits do we have by a a widow who is about to die? Well, it's widow number one, the widow in Zarephath, who's going to go and collect the last two, the last sticks to eat and then die. If this widow has given up her last two denarii, and then she's going to die, probably. In other words, this woman is going to be more impoverished when she walks out of the temple than she was before she walked into it. 
this sacrifice will come a great sacrifice but maybe in her in her world maybe she's relying on that story of the widow of Zarephath that maybe there will be an Elijah in her life we don't know and it's never said we don't know what comes next we just know that she was now she will now be financially much worse off than she was whatever there will be trials here in the middle of this condemnation we don't know if the Savior stepped up to try and do something afterwards but if we just take the story at face value she's worse she's worse than she was when she walked into the temple another case so with both widows they're going to do the last thing they can do in their power and as a result they're going to be worse off their sacrifice may be fatal And the, and the Savior is going to point out that perhaps <coughs> these rich should have been given her the denarii rather than her placing the denarii in there. Sacrifice and trials often follow miracles and sacrifice. Let me tell one, one last one and then, uh, and then we'll wrap up here interesting story um, that I've read a couple of times and I don't remember who this is maybe some of you know who this is in the in the uh, early days of the state of Deseret when Brigham Young decided that he was going to build the St. George Temple and this is the early construction then of the St. George Temple uh, they needed they needed windows and they couldn't afford to put windows yet in the temple so a call went out to the people that if anybody could contribute to the building of the St. George Temple by providing money for the windows, they needed that. Well, there was a man that lived close by in one of the little communities. His family lived in a, in a mud hut. And in church, he heard about the, the call from Brigham Young that they needed money for the windows of the St. George Temple. He had it. He had the money hidden. Uh, in response to that, he sacrificed. He took the money that he'd been saving to be able to build a better house for his family in the mud hut and gave it to the, the bishop. And that money was then used to purchase the materials for the, uh, some of the windows of the St. George Temple. Now, it's at this point we kind of say, okay, a great sacrifice has occurred. What happens to him next? Do the angels show up and there's money where there was, where he'd been hiding it? Does a stranger come into town? You know, and so what's the miracle? Brothers and sisters, there was no miracle. This good man and his family spent the rest of their lives in the mud hut. <laughs> there was ne in, in giving the money to the temple and the blessings that would come to this family spiritually by contributing to the temple, having a temple close by to be able to uh, do work for their dead and for them to be sealed as a family, they received those blessings. But materially, they spent the rest of their lives in a mud hut. There was no uh, ram in the thicket for them financially. 
so here, here's my challenge. Our challenge is, is that sometimes I think in our sacrifice, we need to recognize that uh, there are going to be sacrifices for which there's not going to be an offset. Jesus' life demonstrated that we should not that we're not going to be sheltered from sometimes the high costs of discipleship. Mortality and life in this lone and dreary world that we live in will rarely be fair or result in equal outcomes. And we can say life isn't fair. We can say no, mortality isn't fair. Our discipleship at times may cost us dearly. Or it may not. And it may cost us dearly and someone next to us in sacrament meaning same sacrifice. It may not cost them at all. And they may not even have it offset. We don't know what their package of problems. They may not have a package of problems. But mortality will not be equal in this. And it may cost us dearly in our lives. Taking up our cross daily is often exactly that. It's taking up a cross without knowing what comes next. And I, and I believe it's critical to our faith to set our expectations in a place that we will do what God asks us to do without knowing whether that will result in trials or not. But rather than holding God to that, just recognizing that that's part of mortality and that the Lord weeps with us when we struggle and will bless us where we need those blessings. And that by learning to trust all of that, we are going to be better prepared to be able to love and serve those for whom greater trials have fallen even after the miracles. That's our responsibility, I think, to be those, those hands that will provide that. Bear you my testimony that the Lord intends us to be able to trust Him throughout all. And if we will do that, we're going to recognize his hands that are there in our behalf. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen.